the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Today, I'd like to welcome Sarah Lincoln and Scott Addison. Both are attorneys in the legal field, both practice defense. And I just wanted to introduce you guys and tell us a little bit about yourselves and uh, what led you to work in the legal field. My name is Sarah Lincoln. Scott and I both work at the law firm of Lincoln Durr. We've been in business for about 11 years, and a significant percentage of what we do is defending healthcare providers when they get sued for medical malpractice. I fell into this field to some extent because I was relocating to North Carolina and the firm that I joined happened to have an opening with a partner who was doing medical malpractice defense litigation and just absolutely fell in love with it and stuck with it and have now been doing it for, gosh, over 20 years. And I've been practicing for about 15 years. For me, becoming a lawyer is a little easier. My brother and dad are both attorneys, so it was kind of a natural progression uh, as well. But I had had a, a strong interest in the medical field and in sciences uh, coming up through school and actually worked uh, in heart cath lab at, uh, in Charlotte, at uh, Presbyterian Hospital, and then for a, an allergist. And uh, when I was working for the allergist, I realized that didn't particularly enjoy taking care of sick people. So I changed directions. But once uh, I got into law school and, and got out, quickly gravitated back to uh, trying to, to help healthcare providers because just uh, a lot of respect for the field and, and the people who do the good work there. That's great. And, you know, we're really happy to have you with us today. I, I just want to ask, and I, I don't know if you ever get this question or not, why defense versus plaintiff? For me, it's probably a couple of things. First of all, I have a number of my members of my family who are physicians or otherwise. Actually, I have two PAs also in my family and hospital administrators. And so it would have been a little awkward at the holiday dinner table <laughs> if I was a plaintiff's attorney. Uh, uh -huh. So that would be number one. Number two, I score a one on empathy on every personality test I've ever taken. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Nice. Uh, well, that, that, that explains it. Um, what about you, Scott? Like Sarah, I've got a close connection. My wife is a physician, and so coming home every day if I was suing uh, healthcare providers might be a challenge for me. And like I said, I just uh, I, I really enjoy working with all the healthcare providers I work with and just have so much respect. I, I can't imagine taking the attack approach to them that you have to do on, on the plaintiff side. Mm -hmm. Not to me that I, I probably have a little more empathy for folks than, than Sarah does, but, but still, I, I can't imagine taking that side. Right. I understand. If you had a top couple of things that you really like, you know, this keeps me going and a couple of things that you think, wow, I have to do this today. What, what would it be in the, in your world? I like the communication that I get to have with, with physicians and, and PAs and nurse practitioners and nurses uh, all up and down the field and learning about new areas that, that I don't know about. Um, I, I've heard it described that lawyers have a, a Swiss cheese knowledge of medicine where we can focus in on little bits of really exciting areas, but we don't know the, the full package, um, but it's still so much fun. I, 
I particularly love getting into radiology cases and have a, I guess, a passion for those um, in addition to others. But uh, that, that that's what really keeps me going in this field. I, I don't particularly like some of the gamesmanship that lawyers play. That's never fun for anybody. And of course, there's there's always stress as in any professional field, which everybody has to deal with. So that's my take on it. I really believe that what we do in litigation is a search for the truth. And I've always loved to solve puzzles and problems and putting together the pieces of the puzzle from the medical record to the testimony of witnesses to the medical literature and our experts who help educate us in every case, because in every case there's something a little bit new or nuanced about the medicine that we have to learn in order to defend our healthcare providers. You know, I just like putting it all together and truly believe that our system of justice is intended to be a truth-finding system and um, really, really, really enjoy trying to figure out what the truth of the matter is. I appreciate you guys being here so much. Uh, I can't tell you how important it is uh, for us to cover some of this for our listeners. And my goal is to cover some important legal issues. So we'll just start right off the bat. What happens when I get sued? Think uh, the anatomy of a lawsuit. You know, we all think about it. We all wonder about it. uh, But I don't think people really know what happens. So to start what would be some of the top reasons why a PA might be named in a legal action? I think misdiagnosis, medication errors, but what's your experience? I would say that in the cases that we have seen where the physician assistant is named individually in the lawsuit is usually in a situation where the practice allows the physician assistant to act uh, very independently from a their supervising position. You know, there are a lot of different ways that PAs are utilized in practices and hospitals all across the country, and the views of physicians across the country vary on how independent PAs should be in their practice. Here in North Carolina, and particularly in the orthopedic field, we see physician assistants acting with a lot of autonomy without a lot of direct, you know, position in the room or following up on everything that they do or signing off on every note that they write. So to the extent that you're a PA who is operating in that type of setting where you're working very independently from your supervising physician, then you you may get um, named individually. And most of the cases that we have seen with PAs, it has been missed diagnosis. And that's probably because The PA isn't always in the operating room with the orthopedic physicians and are seeing the patient postoperatively or seeing them perhaps in an urgent care setting after hours without a physician present and and missing either a fracture on an x-ray or an infection or something similar to that. Mm -hmm. And I would go a little bit further with the person that's practicing more independently um, it's very important to make sure you have documentation of your supervising physician and your, um, you know, how you're going to maintain that supervision by phone or whatever. I think that's important to have available, and that way it's documented. I think that could be an issue. So, Scott, are PAs more or less likely to be named in a legal action than their MDs or NP colleagues? I'd say since, um, as Sarah mentioned, there's more and more 
autonomy and responsibility, uh, at least we're seeing being given to PAs and to nurse practitioners, we're going to see more and more uh, PAs be named. When you are, are acting with that level of autonomy, you are treated the same as an MD. You know, if, if you're operating in an environment where it is, uh, I guess, a little bit more collaborative, where, for instance, in the emergency department, if you're at a facility that requires the MD to, to oversee your work for every single patient, and you have more direct communication for every patient, you're not going to be as likely to be named when the chart reflects that the MD is involved. Uh, however, when you are the, really the sole person um, who's taking care of the patient, you're you're going to be the one who would have a, a target on you uh, if something goes wrong. And I think, you know, historically, it's it's been the MDs because uh, historically the MDs have been the ones who have, have taken all the primary responsibility. And that's, I think, changing in certain areas. I know um, I've been doing a, a fair amount of emergency department work and with PAs and nurse practitioners taking more responsibility there. We're seeing more individually named folks in that arena. Uh, Sarah mentioned orthopedics is a strong area for, for PAs to be working in. Um, and, and they're given more responsibility. And um, that's not a bad thing, but with more responsibility, you may have more exposure to potential liability that way. So unfortunately, I, as, as healthcare progresses and as um, institutions try to reduce costs, and, and of course the biggest cost for institutions is individual compensation, that's going to mean more responsibility is given to uh, advanced care pro providers, and that's going to mean more exposure to, to lawsuits. Along your point, how important is it to have good documentation? It's, it's extremely important. I think that helps you quite a bit if, you know, this thing becomes a case. But, okay, so I get the dreaded letter, the summons, or, okay, what is it called? Uh, I have been named in a lawsuit. How does that happen? What happens? <laughs> Once a lawsuit gets filed, it'll get filed down at the clerk's office at the courthouse. It then has to be served whoever is named as an individual defendant in the lawsuit. So it will get served a couple of different ways. We're now allowed to serve lawsuits by Federal Express or overnight mail with evidence of delivery. It can get served by certified mail, which is through the U.S. Postal Service, which has a little green card on the envelope that you then have to sign, or it can get served by a, by a sheriff. Those are the ways that you would initially receive a copy of the lawsuit that's been filed against you. If I'm named in a legal action, um, what's the chronology of events after that? What happens next? The technical steps, the procedural steps would be you then have to answer that lawsuit, and then from there you would issue written discovery to the other side to find out what really happened, get all their medical records, gather all of the information, which is what the discovery process is and the litigation. You know, experts get hired along in that process and depositions are taken after all of the written discovery is exchanged usually. And then at some point after all of the experts have been deposed by both sides, after, you know, you've gotten, you're at least satisfied that you've gotten most of the written documentation, because there's always something that pops up at the last minute, it seems, then you would have to go through what's called a mediation, which is a court-ordered effort 
to resolve the case, and that's required in every lawsuit that gets filed in the state of North Carolina. And you just sit down with a third-party neutral person who tries to see if they can broker a settlement between the two parties. It's not a decision-making process. It's literally just there to try and settle cases. Um, Our courts found once they started mandating those types of meetings that more cases got settled, and it took some of the burden off of our court system for trying cases. So that's been a requirement for many, many years, and some cases get settled at mediation. Some cases don't. If it doesn't, then we get ready for trial. Depending on which county you're in, that process usually lasts about two years from the date the complaint is filed until it goes to trial. Now, that was pre-COVID. We have no idea what that's going to look like going forward over the next couple of years because our courts have become so backlogged and not being able to have jury trials due to COVID. You know, how many cases do you think wind up being settled? In in the medical malpractice arena, probably somewhere in the range of maybe 85% either settle or get dismissed, either voluntarily or involuntarily. And and so it, we do try a fair number of cases uh, in medical malpractice as opposed to uh, other areas of, of litigation, such as um, you know, business litigation, financial services litigation, where the decision there is, is really a business decision, most of the time those will not go to trial, as opposed to in medical malpractice when we have so many other factors uh, that go into play, we end up trying more of these cases. Okay, so the day's here, deposition day. It's kind of like Armageddon day. And, it, you know, it's impossible not to have anxiety when you're sitting there at the table being asked questions. And, you know, it, it might not be a, a deposition that you're going to for, you know, your own thing. It might be something that, like a worker's comp, they're just looking at the records and you did some service and they want to ask you about the records. But still, I have people come to me all the time and ask me about depositions, what it's like, and, you know, what do you do? So what do you do? How do you make this not go badly? How do you not be a buffoon? How do you not, how do you not follow the leading questions and open up a can of worms? What, how do you do that? Preparation, preparation, preparation. It's the key to any time, you know, you would be thinking about standing up and making a presentation to somebody. So you should do the same level of preparation to get ready for a deposition as you would to make any other type of public statement or public appearance that you would be making. The real key to me is rely heavily on your legal team. Some orthopedic practices in particular are large enough that you have in-house counsel. Reach out to in-house counsel. Ask them if you can get help. If you are not in an organization that's large enough to have an in-house counsel, ask them if your malpractice carrier will provide assistance to prepare you for your deposition. You know, if you are named individually in a lawsuit, your lawyer is going to prepare you for the deposition. And we spend hours upon hours upon hours with our witnesses, getting them ready to the point where they tell us that they feel comfortable going forward. Not a question of whether or not we are comfortable. That's important. But what is most important is that the witness is comfortable with their level of preparation. Awesome. Yeah, I, th- I think we all need that person to tell us what we're doing because it, it does. I mean, after you've done a few, it's not that bad, but initially it causes a lot of anxiety for sure. 
This is going to be very helpful for our listeners. Really appreciate you being here today uh, and hope I can have you back and we can talk about some other things. So thanks, Sam. Great. Thanks so much, Sam. We appreciate it. All right. You guys take care. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Please follow the Physician Assistance and Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.